This morning's passage is from the book of Psalms. It's the 121st Psalm. I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going both now and forevermore. Thanks, Larry. Morning, everybody. Summer is an interesting time. We... We often, uh, in, it involves vacations and travel and activities and things that we're doing. You know, if, if you're uh, accustomed to, to being and sitting in one particular place in uh, this auditorium, not that any of us are creatures of habit or do any of those kinds of things. But if that were true, uh, you know, during the summer, usually you look around and you see some of the some empty seats where there were familiar faces before, right? There are people who just aren't here for various weeks during the summer. Uh, we're off on those family vacations, those trips, that travel. Uh, we're going to visit uh, family. We're uh, off to do various activities. I mean, we were off last week to do a wedding. Uh, it's uh, various uh, various things that cause us to be gone during this time of year. Travel uh, often requires planning and consideration. Much as many of us might like to think that you could just go out and get in the car and maybe throw a suitcase in uh, and, and be off and everything would go smoothly and perfectly well, that's usually not the case. It usually requires thought and consideration, you need to make reservations, you need to plan the travel trip, you need to plan what you're going to do and where you're going and who you're going to see. And so once we make all those perfect plans, everything tends to go just absolutely perfectly, doesn't it? Nothing ever goes wrong. Every place we go is is a delight to be. Every family member we spend time with is completely enjoyable to be with and nothing Nothing ever gets in the way. Uh, no old, store, old tapes are ever played. Um, that's delusional, isn't it? It isn't really true. It just isn't the way life is. Life involves plans, and life involves plans that are subverted. Life involves our desires and our wishes, and life involves our desires and wishes being knocked off their course. Contemplate. Uh, for some of us, uh, this is a long time ago. For some, this is still your reality. Most of us start out life when we're, when we're in our younger years, uh, teen years, especially early adulthood, where we, we think we have life figured out. We, we think we have a course that we're going to follow that's completely and totally rational, and, and, and this is the way it's going to be. B, no questions about it, right? This is, this is uh, how we, we think things will go. And we start out down this pathway called life, this journey that is life, and, huh, things don't go the way we thought they would. Oftentimes they go somewhere completely different. Sometimes they just make little course adjustments. 
most for most of us over the course of life we make several changes turns and redirects and that's again the process that we just think of as being life well here in this 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 psalm today we're looking at somebody preparing for a journey we're looking at somebody who's preparing for a trip the the superscription of this psalm says it's a song of ascent some of you may have a, a version that says a song of degrees. Basically, it's talking about the same thing. This is a part of a group of psalms from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134 that are called the songs of ascent. It's talking about a journey. It's talking about traveling from a low place to a higher place. It's talking about the possibility of things that will go on during that journey. All of these psalms do this. We're not really clear on why these are called songs of ascent. We're not really clear on what they were used for in the times that they were written. That's all a little mysterious, a little vague, a little unclear. But they all do take us from one place to another, and they all take us from a place where we're focused on ourselves to a place where we're focused on the God who provides for all that we need on that journey. These, these songs may have been used uh, by pilgrims, by, the, by, by re, uh, religious Hebrew families when they would travel from their homes to Jerusalem uh, up to three times a year uh, for, the fest, for the required festivals. Uh, the festival of Passover in the spring, uh, the festival of first fruits in, uh, during the summer in uh, late May or early June, and the festival of tabernacles or booths in late September or early October. <clears throat> and these may have been songs that uh, the travelers would sing as they were journeying along the way, and they were intended to focus their, their intentions, their hearts, and their minds on where they were going and why they were going there. And they, they may have been used uh, for, for that purpose. And in fact, there's some thought that uh, this, this particular psalm might be one that would be sung as one is sitting outside in the camp on the last night with the, uh, <clears throat> the, the uh, spires of the temple up on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, clearly silhouetted against the western sun as you're traveling from east to west and uh, that as those spires are silhouetted, you're looking at the high place and focusing on God who is you're coming to worship. Another possibility for these psalms is that these uh, were sung by the priests as they climbed the temple steps. There are 15 steps that lead from the, uh, the court of women to the court of Israel in the temple. And there are 15 psalms of ascent. And it's thought that possibly the priests sang these psalms as they would step, step by step, these great massive solid granite steps climbing up into the temple. There are a number of other theories about these psalms as well. And I think what I get down to when, I, when you think about all of that is this point. We don't know. We don't really know what they were used for. We don't know why they were done in this manner, or why exactly these psalms are 
put together as the songs of ascent or the songs of degree. Degree refers to the altitude climb of the steps, by the way. So it would be just as you're climbing a degree, a degree, a degree up the steps. Yeah. So we don't really know why. All we know is that the writer starts off by saying, I lift up my eyes to the hills. So we, what we have here are some pictures uh, that Rod gave us from, from his travels in Israel. Right here we have a man looking. You can't really see it because of the haze in the, in the background. And actually I like that because it sort of conveys this idea that we're not really certain what, what the writer is talking about. But he's looking, this man is looking up at those hills. Go ahead, Steve. Give me the next one. And, and he's seeing these various kinds of hills in the, in the distance. And sometimes these hills were places where uh, there was danger. Uh, oftentimes robbers, uh, thieves would lurk in the hills uh, that, that were along the way, uh, particularly those that were in the area from Jericho in the east over to Jerusalem. And those hills were filled with robbers and thieves, so it was something to fear on the journey. Go ahead, Steve. Or it might be another form of, uh, of thing that they were looking at in these hills. The Baal gods were worshipped in the hills. So pagan worship often took place up in these mountains. Uh, people who were worshipping the Baal gods would go up there and build their altars as a place where they thought they could get closer to the heavens, where their gods would be lifted up and held up on high. And then see... They could be a place of protection. David, remember, spoke several times about fleeing to the mountains. Here we have the great mountain of Masada. Uh, and it could be a place where people went to feel secure or safe from their enemies. The beauty of this form of uh, writing that we have before us, thanks Steve, is that this is poetry. And poetry often is intended to open up our minds and our hearts and our spirits to the, to the specific things that we need to hear at this moment in time. Poetry is purposefully vague, purposefully imaginative, purposely filled with images that have multiple meanings. And, and the Psalms are all poetry. And this one is a particularly poetic Psalm, I think, too. And so we're given this opportunity to take these words and look at what do these words say to me today? What is it that the writer wanted me to understand about my relationship to God today? What is going on in my world that this writer's words will speak to, that the God who's behind those words wants me to understand? What understandings of God will he give to me through these words? And poetry helps open up those kinds of images for us. Um, John F. Kennedy said this about poetry in a speech that he gave at Amherst College in honor of the late poet Robert Frost. <clears throat> when power leads men toward arrogance, poetry reminds him of his limitations. When power narrows the areas of man's concern, poetry reminds him of the richness and diversity of his existence. When power corrupts, poetry cleanses. For art establishes the basic human truths which must serve as the touchstones of our judgment. 
The artist, however, faithful to his personal vision of reality, becomes the last champion of the individual mind and sensibility against an intrusive society and an officious state. The great artist is thus a solitary figure. He has, as Frost said, a lover's quarrel with the world. In pursuing his perceptions of reality, he must often sail against the currents of his time. And I think here we have a psalm that sails against the currents of our time. The psalm leads us to look at one singular reality. As the writer, the writer says, as he poses his question, first of all, he says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. And then he asks the question, from where does my help come? He doesn't find it there. The place where David went for refuge, the place where many in the land had gone to worship their pagan gods, provides no help. It only provides questions, insecurity, and, and fears. So he goes on to answer his question. In verse 2, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And he's very, very, very specific and clear here. When he says, where does my help come from? It comes from the Lord. And he names God at that point. The, the, in, in Old Testament writing, typically when somebody says, who, may, who describes God as the one who made heaven and earth, he is naming God. That is a name of God. The one who made heaven and earth, the creator. He's saying, I look to the creator. When I look at these mountains, they are creation. When I look beyond these mountains, I see the one whose hand made them. I see the one who holds me close and who keeps me in his firm grip. I see the one who will not let me go. I see the one whose Will I follow and whose spirit guides me? I see the one who is my protector and my counselor. This is what I see when I look to the hills and beyond. And so he is, he is beginning, to, he's stating that he sees where his true help comes from when he's going on this journey, whether it's the journey of traveling from his home to Jerusalem for the festival are more significantly and more pertinent to us because we don't do that specific thing, but we enter into a journey of life that is an ongoing process of traveling through this world, and it is an ongoing process of seeking and following the will of, of God the Creator. And that is what he's saying is happening here. He's saying, as I set out on that journey, I plan, I purpose to look to my Creator, as the one who will protect me and guide me on that journey. And he goes on to say in verse 3, He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Okay. <clears throat> I'm going to make a side, side journey for just a moment. Note the change in voice here. It goes from my to you. <clears throat> and these are singular you and yours. These are expressions stated about one person, not about plural people. And, and what we may have happening here, but we don't know, again, because it's Hebrew poetry and nobody really sat down and wrote a, a guide to tell us what he was thinking when he wrote it. But what we have here is possibly a dialogue. We may have the, the, the first verses posing the, the question, if you will, of 
the, the writer, and the second one, he writes down a response that he receives from a wise counselor, a priest, someone else who is a, a, a wise person of God, who speaks back to him and says, he will not let your foot be moved. What he may also be doing here is talking to himself. Not that if any of you have, a, have an ability to relate to that experience of, of self-talk, he may be actually answering his own questions and says, you know, the Lord is not going to let your foot, me, my foot, be moved. He who, slum, he who keeps you will not slumber. And it's a reminder of who exactly this creator God is. It's a reminder to us that this is the person, this is the, this is the singular entity within our universe that we can trust completely, that we can rely on without question under every circumstance at all times. End of story. Um, he, and he, and he does a couple of very interesting things again in language here. The knots that are used in this particular verse, not let your foot and will not slumber, are Hebrew words that suggest either a request or a desire. They, they, they actually form more of a, a, a request to God. So he's, it's almost as if he is saying, God, don't let my foot, don't let my foot slip. And, don't, and please, God, don't, don't be asleep when, when trouble comes, when evil attacks. I, want, I need you, I want you, I desire you in my life. It's a statement that says that there is no moment in my life when I don't want your presence with me. There's no hiding out from this. This guy is saying there's no hiding out from God. I want him in my life. And he's requesting him to be there. And in the writing of the psalm, there's an immediate response to that request. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. It's the Hebrew writer's response back to the request that he just made. And, and I think that's significant in the sense that this is, this is a deep and personal and intimate journey into a relationship with God. He is going deep into that relationship and exploring it in ways that are powerful and profound. <clears throat> he, is, he is taking us along in his walk with God. And he is stating that unlike the Baal gods, the Baal gods were notorious for needing to be awakened. You needed to offer them a sacrifice. You needed to, to chant the right words. You needed to come to them and, and, and ring the bell and get them to respond to you. They wanted to be pursued. This is not a God who needs us to pursue. This is a God who pursues. Our Lord is one who comes to us and is never, 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 never asleep. He is always with us, always awake always vigilant, always engaged in our world. And, and so this, this is a significant reminder for, for I think, for all of us that the, that the God who we worship, the God who we put our trust in, is the God who is completely worthy of worship and trust, the one who is completely reliable, the one who is totally with us through this process of life. There are times when it seems like life is out to get us. There are times when things are hard. There, is there are times when evil seems to be striking in ways 
that are beyond understanding. There are times when the journey is unclear, when the clouds swirl around us, when the fog of the valley becomes overwhelming. And yet, this writer is saying these were true of his journey, and he recognizes that even in those times, God is with him. The Lord is protecting him. The Lord is counseling him. The Lord will not leave him, and the Lord will stay true to his commitment to stay with him forever. And, and at times it takes faith, it takes trust to simply stay there. At times we have to say, I don't get it. I don't understand anything that's going on in my life or in this world. I simply am puzzled, I'm confused, I'm hurt, I'm struggling. Lord God, I trust you. Lord God, bring me your answer. It's okay, like the writer of this psalm did, to put it as a request. Lord, I want you here. I want you to respond to this situation. I desire to understand what your will is, and I don't. Please make it clear to me. Make this something that I can grasp, something that I can hold on to. Right now I'm holding on to simply my absolute trust and faith in you. That's what I have. I'm looking for more, but that's what I have today. And so this is, this is where the writer, the writer is telling us that that's, that's an okay place to be, that God will fulfill his commitment to stay with us, and he will bring us into an understanding of his will in time. As we go on in this psalm, it says, you know, the, he, he creates some interesting images for us. The Lord is your keeper. This is one of the key phrases of this whole psalm, is that the Lord is your keeper, the one who, who holds you, the one who is, is intimately close. The Lord is your shade on the right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. He, he's tying in some deep concepts of, of creation into, into this story that he's living in. The writer is, is living in his story with God. Um, Archer Weiser, in a great commentary on the Psalms, said this, The Old Testament concept of creation ministers not to a theoretical explanation of the universe, but to the mastering of a concrete situation in life in a practical way. It represents not a piece of knowledge, but a decision to submit to God's creative will and power. And that's what I think that the author here is in part saying to us. He wants us to realize that no matter what, he creates these, these this contrastive images here, the sun, the moon, two things, the two ends of the daily spectrum, right? You've got the day and you've got the night. In, in Hebrew poetry, when, you, when, when the writer puts forth these contrasts like this, what he's really saying is everything. What he wants us to understand is that he's talking about everything there is in our physical life. The, the sun and the moon, the day, the night, today, tomorrow, next year, the rest of my life. That's what he's including in that group of things where he's saying the Lord is my keeper. Everything. Now, the images are powerful, strong, real images. These would be very powerful images in the Middle Eastern mind. Contemplate, you know, you saw those pictures. Contemplate what we know the sun is like in, in the, the land where, where the writer of this psalm was living. Uh, the desert environment, the pounding, brutal sun. For those of us like I have who've lived in desert climates, you know that the sun 
the sun is your friend, the sun is your ally, it causes things to grow, it's, it's a positive thing, but it can also be very much your enemy. The sun can kill a person in a very short amount of time if that person isn't careful, isn't wise, isn't prudent, or gets, gets caught by circumstance. The sun, the sun can be devastatingly harsh. And here the writer says that the Lord protects me from that sun, from that harsh, those harsh elements of life, those things that, that want, to, want to fry my skin, those things that want to beat me up and knock me down and dehydrate me and make me weak. The sun protects me from all, the, the Lord protects me from all of those things that the sun would do to me. And he's on my right hand. Again, a little bit of, some, little bit of symbolic language. The right hand would be the place where the protector and the counselor would stand. This is the place of both of those, uh, those roles, protection and counsel. And that's where the Lord is. He's there to both protect and to guide me, to give me wisdom. And then he keeps me from the moon. Now, in this, this culture, remember, people attributed the moon with all sorts of nasty things. They said the moon caused epilepsy. The moon caused uh, fevers. The moon, was, the moon was a dangerous thing. You never wanted to be caught out under the moon. Lunacy comes from the, from the word for moon. The idea that you're crazy, you're moon crazy. Uh, they, this was, these, were, these were truly held beliefs. I've read uh, some commentary, in fact, that was written in the mid-19th century in a Western culture by an English commentarian talking about the fact that although that stuff was silly, the moon didn't cause those illnesses. We all know that it was the vapors from the moon that caused them. <laughs> so, even, you know, pretty recently people were still holding on to the idea that the moon made us sick. Um, until very recent times in, in the Middle Eastern lands, they still held this belief, by the way, uh, that, that the moon would cause you to become ill. Shakespeare had a comment to make about the moon as well. The moon, the governess of floods, pale in their anger, washes all the air that rheumatic diseases abound. It's not a Midsummer Night's Dream. So it's, you know, it, it was commonly held that the moon was dangerous. But the point here isn't that the moon was dangerous. The point is that all of life carries danger. Every step we take through this world brings us at, puts us at risk. When we seek to journey in the Lord's will, when we seek to follow his desire for our lives and to follow him into life, we are walking in a dangerous path. There are things which will go after us. There is evil out there that wants to fight against us. There, is, there, there are forces in this world that seek to destroy. And, and there are ways in which we can misstep and miss, and, and miss, miss journey on our way and the Lord is there to guide us and protect us. He is there as our counselor. He is there as our protector. He is there regardless of the circumstances. He is there regardless of the situation. This author wants us to understand that because he wants us to enter into the journey with confidence. He doesn't want us to enter into this journey with fear, with concern that overwhelms our ability to follow what the Lord wills for us. He wants us to enter into the journey as ones who are willing to trust him. Not just say it, but do it. 
actually engaged the journey in a way that, tr- that demonstrates that trust. He, he, he wants us to go out of our safe doors and enter into the dangerous lands that are around us in, in our community, in our world. He wants us to say the things that are risky. He wants us to love the people who are unlovely. He wants us to be willing to trust on the journey. And he goes on to say, the Lord will keep you from all evil. He keeps expanding the view. The writer keeps moving us from now from our natural world into the, into, if you will, the, the world of things which are spiritual and mystical. The word he uses for evil here is the Hebrew word ra. The Hebrew word ra is an all-inclusive word for evil. It means everything, every form, every type of evil. The Lord will keep you from all evil. And he will keep your life. Literally, he will keep your soul. He will protect your deepest and most intimate person, that being which is in intimate contact and relationship with Christ. This is where he keeps you. And this is where I see, although this psalmist would not, of course, have have been been thinking in these terms specifically, I think I see the, the inspiration of the hand of God here. And I see Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, depicted very clearly in these last two verses. I see him talking in terms of who who keeps us from all evil? Who keeps our souls protected? Who counsels our, our spirits? The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. He is the one who again, again, we have rather one of those completion statements here, coming out, going in. It's the entirety of the journey of life that he's talking about here. He's talking about the, 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 the point at which we are today, moving forth, going out in our journey. He's talking about our homecoming, the very end of that journey, that finishing well that is the desire of those in Christ. He is talking about the entirety of it. He's saying all of this, every bit of it, is in the hands of God. I am myself in Christ, held in the hands of God. I am protected. I am counseled. I am made wise. I am given his will. I am given his way to live and his way to go. And he wants me to to look up with confidence. He wants my eyes to be lifted up to the hills. He wants me to understand that I have absolute confidence, that I can live with absolute confidence in him, that faith leads me to this place where I can step out with complete security, knowing that there is nothing I can do that will separate me from this God who loves me more than anything else, and who cares about my life more than anything else, and who is entered into my life in ways that I cannot even comprehend. And, and who is with me in that process forever. Unstopping, unceasing, unyielding. You know, as we look at sort of stepping out into this journey, you know, I think we're back to that original question that our, that our writer put up. You know, you know, he looks to the hills. Where do we look? You know, where do you look? Uh, as our as our our guy here is standing there gazing off into the distance, the question becomes for us, and I think it becomes for us on a daily basis, 
maybe a minute by minute, hour by hour basis. Where am I going to look? Where am I going to put my trust? Where am I going to put my faith? Who is it that, that answers these questions for me? What is it that responds to the struggles and the, and the challenges that I have in life? Where do I find my sense of security, my understanding of who I am, my, my ability to, to deal with life and to deal with life in a manner that portrays Christ in every step of the way? Where do I look? As our writer here said, where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. The one who provides me with that, that understanding, that capacity to walk into this life and to not be beaten down by the struggles that come. The ability to keep going when evil attacks, when, <clears throat> when my way gets confused, when the road gets tough, when the thieves and bandits strike, when those night vapors come, you know, when illness hits. The ability to, to, to say, I can trust in my Lord for every step of the way. That comes from that trust, from that purposing to trust. Some days it's necessary to simply say, okay, I don't get it. I'm going to purpose to trust you today. It's what I know you are. It's who I know you are. It's who you have been from all of history all of my personal history, all of, all of the history of your relationship with man, this is who you've been. And I trust that. I'm not going to allow this circumstance, I'm not going to allow this word of doubt to set me off course, to disrupt my way. I'm going to go with you, Lord, regardless. And that's what the psalmist wants us to, to look at here. He wants us, we're given this, these images, and we're said, okay, where do I find my counsel? Where do I find my way? Where do I find the truth? We find these things from time in, in prayer with, our, with, with the Lord, in times of just talking through it, of being honest, like the writer of this psalm was. When he had a question, he threw the question out there. When he, when he had a request, he threw the request out there. He talked. It's a personal and an intimate relationship. Where do we go? I go to his word and I read it and I read it with an open mind and I look at how he will answer me through the words on the page. One, one thought today, maybe a different thought tomorrow, but that the, the truths are there. They're written down for us to understand. And I gather in the body and I, and I, and I share and I open and I am part of a group of people who together stand strong. A group of people who as, as a body are Christ in, in action, alive in this world. And that's where I go. I don't look to the mountain. I look beyond the mountain, to the sky, to the universe. And when I look at the universe, I look beyond that and I see the creator who touched it all and who touched my life and who made my life real and who makes every day of my life meaningful. And that's where we look to the Lord for help, for strength, for guidance. We look to his universe and we see him. We look inside and we find Christ alive. And we step into our world and we bring Christ, we impart Christ into that world. That's how the writer of this psalm, I think, is calling us to live. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we, 
We thank you for your word. We thank you for your love. We thank you for the fact that you are in our lives. We thank you for your reality, that you are with us every step of this journey that we are on. We ask that you would enter into that journey with us, that you would take us step by step through it, that your will would be made complete in everything we're doing, that we would be a body of people who grow strong together and that we would be individuals who seek to grow deep in you and to know you better every day. Jesus, we just thank you for your love and for your care and your provision and your counsel. In your name we pray. Amen.